a look at new opportunities among the business trends. This is Global Business. Welcome to this edition of Global Business on CGTN. I'm Guan Xing in Beijing. Coming up on the program. The U.S. city of San Francisco is gearing up for the week-long Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting hosting 21 member economies from the Pacific Rim. We take a look at the impact of the Israel-Palestine conflict on regional and global economies. In our special series on China's progress on comprehensively deepening reforms, today we're zooming on Zhejiang's green transformation efforts. The U.S. city of San Francisco is gearing up for the week-long Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation meetings. U.S. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen held an introductory meeting with China's Minister of Finance Lan Fo'an. Yellen spoke about her meeting with China's Premier Li Hefeng earlier and conveyed the continued importance of maintaining resilient communication channels between the two sides. The APEC event will host 21 member economies from the Pacific Rim regions, including Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden. Hundreds of Brandy reports from San Francisco. Security is tight in the city, and it's only expected to get tighter here in the days to come. This is an event that the city has been preparing for for quite some time. We see barricades going up on streets around the Moscone Center, which is the convention center where a lot of the activities and the meetings will be taking place. The uh, commitments that are made at these meetings, which occur every year, multiple meetings per year, actually, these commitments are purely voluntary, but it's a way to kind of... Uh, smooth economic cooperation around the world in the Asian Pacific region, uh, enhance supply chains, just make trade and economic cooperation easier, if at all possible. The U.S. is the chair of APEC in 2023, and San Francisco is the host city uh, for Leaders Week. Uh, various components to that among the uh, activities going on this week, the CEO Summit, where uh, we'll be seeing 1,200 global CEOs the theme of this week is creating economic opportunity, and they've identified four key pillars that they're going to be focusing on, sustainability, inclusion, resilience, as well as innovation. Now, there are basically uh, two parallel events going on, obviously APEC itself, but then also the U.S.-China uh, meeting, the big meeting scheduled for the middle of the week between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping. They've got lots to talk about. They haven't met in person for a year now since their meeting in Bali last fall. Uh, lots of issues on the agenda. We can uh, predict what uh, some, of those, uh, some of those agenda items are. Certainly climate change, always a top issue. Uh, Economic-related issues, certainly the uh, export restrictions the U.S. has put on technology to China. That's a major bone of contention. Uh, issues like fentanyl uh, will be discussed here between the two presidents and their delegations. Also, uh, the issue of military-to-military -military contact, something that the U.S. is very keen on. Uh, there may be some headway made in those areas. Artificial intelligence is another big issue, along with nuclear nonproliferation. So uh, there's lots to talk about, uh, and this is sort of the venue where she and Biden will be talking and hoping to make some progress on uh, various areas. One expert, one pundit, was quoted as saying that preventing any further deterioration in the bilateral economic relationship with the U.S. and China 
uh, would be a victory for both sides. So perhaps a relatively low bar, but something both countries hope to achieve at this meeting, which will happen in a couple of days amidst all of the uh, pageantry and the hard work behind closed doors that happens at these APEC meetings uh, each time around. We'll be here to cover it all. Hendrik Sabrandi, CGTN, San Francisco. And earlier, Arshu Shinchen spoke to the co-chair of the APEC 2023 host committee about the potential benefits of the APEC meetings for San Francisco. The historic Klamath Ferry Boat, built in 1925, is now restored and the headquarters for the Bay Area Council along the San Francisco waterfront. That's where I met Kevin Xu, the co-chair of the host committee for this year's APEC meeting. I would say this is a wonderful opportunity for the city itself to really experience such a big international event since the establishment of the UN. Because we know in the city needs some kind of way to bring the vitality back. Chinese President Xi Jinping is scheduled to meet here with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden later this week. San Francisco has the second largest Chinese American community in the country. California Governor Gavin Newsom recently paid a visit to China and President Xi Jinping also met with the governor and during their meeting the Chinese president said that uh, the foundation and hope for China-U.S. relations lies with the people and the future lies with the youth and of course the vitality lies with sub-national entities. So what's your take on this remark? By the end of the day is how we people took those message back. Mm. How people actually take home the information, and I, I would say I will recall um, a word from uh, Governor Newsom during his visit in China. He said um, San Francisco has the first Chinatown being built in the United States, yes. and by having this opportunity to invite delegations, especially Chinese delegation, to come to visit the city of SF, you basically have an opportunity to show them around. The Chinatown and how Chinese people live here and how they carry their culture from their mother country to the U.S. And therefore you see a transformation, but also another way to reflect reflecting inclusivities. Yes. Inclusivity of culture. Yes. That people from China actually build their Chinatown yeah. based on their vision. But how does Chinatown become a strong bond, just like the bridge yeah. we see, yeah. that actually having a stronghold of the people, especially fatalities from the local. 30 years ago in Seattle, the 1993 APEC Leaders Declaration, the U.S. was an advocate for building an open multilateral trade system and strengthening cooperation. Since then, there's been a growing protectionist sentiment. Now, with eyes off the world or on San Francisco, this is one of the most important gatherings of global leaders this year is a golden opportunity for the whole city to shine and use this as an opportunity for economic change. Xu Xinchen, CGTN, San Francisco. What do people in the U.S. expect from the meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden? Our reporter Zhu Zhu talks to some locals in San Francisco. I think it's great that they're willing to cooperate like that. I think there's a lot to get from China. They're, uh, technology is subpar at this point, so uh, I definitely think to gain as or to maximize as much as possible on that. I know that the U.S. Um, uses a lot of resources from China, um, so I, I believe like just that collaboration in, in general um, should be uh, it should be utilized a lot more, especially with technology. 
I think any time the two countries can communicate, it's going to help business for both countries. I, I'm a resident of San Francisco, and obviously we have a, a wonderful, vibrant Chinese community here. And I think uh, anything that raises up San Francisco's visibility and the Chinese community is very positive. I hope that they can realize what they are missing and that they can collaborate with China. Um, we have a lot of problems in this in this country, you know, and so I think it would be great if they really decide to collaborate with China and stop this you know, tension. I, I think it's great that we're talking. It's, a, it's, the, it's the, the technology of the future, so it, it really needs to be worked out now how we're, how we're dealing with all that stuff, so I think it's great that we're having conversations about it. Now, for more discussions on Apex Row in the global economy, let's talk to our old friend Liu Zhijing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Jimmy University of China. Thank you for joining us again, Mr. Liu. So considering the current global economic landscape, what role can Apex play in addressing the major challenges faced by the global economy? I should say that the Apex meeting is so important, not only for China, but also for the whole world, especially for the global economy. As we know, the APEC has uh, minimum the three important roles has played in the past three decades, especially. First, the first role is that it's a good platform for communication. And the second role is that a platform for uh, challenge solutions, that means the dispute solution. And the third is the opportunity finder or provider. As we know, the APEC is uh, uh, a, a product from globalization. That's why in the past 30 years, it has made great uh, achievements for the global economic development. So from communication, from the uh, solution for challenges and the conflicts, and also third for opportunities for all countries equally and transparently. So all these three rules have made great contribution to further develop the economic development uh, in the whole world, especially for uh, during the very special time, for instance, when we met the world uh, financial crisis, when we had uh, the pandemic crisis all over the world, all these problems made some headwinds for all countries' economic development. But APEC plays a so important role that it communicated with each other to exchange experiences and opinions, especially from policy level, because this is a platform for important state heads to meet together to discuss the hottest issues around the world. And of course, the third role, as I mentioned, that the opportunity finder. If we can, through the negotiations and communication, we can find more opportunities to further develop our economy. Where is the point for further cooperation? So, the APEC rule can really address many challenges we are facing. As you mentioned, it is a product of globalization. But recently, we're also seeing rising protectionism, uh, unilateralism. Uh, do you see any potential for APEC to further enhance its role in light of these changes? Yeah, that's true. As we know that all countries have different issues, have different uh, expectations, for instance, different policies to support their own uh, economy. but. One thing is all is the same because all the countries have the same uh, request. That is the 
uh, stabilization of the economic development, no matter is a domestic or is a international. So stabilization is the common interest of all countries. So this is the basis for all countries to have a uh, equal discussion and also to have open-minded negotiations. As we know that in the past years we try to have uh, inclusiveness and have more openness to avoid any protectionism. This is not an easy job, but anyhow, this platform is a good chance and a good channel to communicate with each other. We can see what the points that all the countries or some countries are focused on, what we can find the common interest, as we always said. We have common interest, we have common uh, benefits. So this is what we are always trying to say, the so-called shared future. We should do something that to have a shared interest and a shared future for the further development. Well, China has expressed its expectation for APEC to strengthen regional economic cooperation and foster an open world economy, but it has deeply concerned about existing U.S. sanctions on Chinese companies. How do you think APEC can help foster collaboration? That's why we say that uh, APEC is also a, a solution finder. That means that we are facing many challenges and uh, disputes, even heavy tensions between the trade and the economic relations, for instance, between China and the United States, not only, but also with other developed countries who have such a dispute. How to find a solution? Conflict is, is no, no help, no uh, way out for all countries. We have to cooperate with each other to find a, a good solution that, to solve all these disputes. Now we are having a best chances to discuss all these points face to face. I think the, the two uh, heads of the government countries will have to discuss all these uh, major concerns. How is the core interest will be respected and uh, supported by the global market. So in this way that we should find out uh, good uh, chances for not only China and the United States, but for, for all the APEC members that, uh, to learn from each other, to support from each other, in order to build up a really a real that share the future. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. That was Liu Zhiqing, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Since the outbreak of the current Palestine Israel conflict, the volatility of global oil prices has intensified, but prices have yet to see a sharp rise or fall. Global oil prices rose last Friday as investors bought the dip following a string of declines earlier last week. While this week oil prices fell sharply, global oil prices have risen since the conflict began in October, with Brent crude hitting over $92 a barrel. But in just a month, the price of crude oil has dropped sharply. The World Bank sees the impact on oil prices as limited if the conflict does not spread further. International Energy Agency officials said this round of conflict has not yet caused oil supply disruptions. But if it spreads to Iran and other parts of the Middle East, it could have a greater impact on the market. 
The ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine has caused significant economic losses for both sides. A UN report that analyzes the conflict's economic impact on Palestine forecasts that the state's economy will shrink between 4 and 12 percent in 2023 and between 4 and 9 percent in 2024. The poverty rate will surge sharply by between 20 percent and 45 percent. The economic losses are not unilateral according to a survey conducted by Israel's Central Bureau of Statistics. About 51% of firms have suffered a more than 50% loss in revenue. And the Bank of Israel Governor Amir Yaron said the costs were larger than initially forecast. He said the country's GDP growth will be 1% lower in 2023 and 2024, and its debt-to-GDP ratio will climb to 65% by the end of 2024 from less than 60% prior to the conflict. 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War dragged Israel to the brink of financial collapse. If the current conflict is protracted, history could repeat itself. Stephanie Freed reports. Hamas's October rampage through southern Israel sparked a chain reaction. In response to Hamas killings, kidnappings, and desecrations, Israel's military mobilized for war on Hamas-controlled Gaza, calling up hundreds of thousands of soldiers for duty. Tens of thousands of Israelis living in the direct line of mortar, rocket, and missile fire from Gaza, Lebanon, and Syria were evacuated from border communities in the country's north and south. Schools are closed, malls and restaurants are vacant. Tourism is at a standstill. Businesses whose employees are in the army are shuttered. Migrant workers propping up the agriculture industry have fled the country in fear, and the shekel versus the dollar is at its lowest point in 10 years. The plan is clear. Open the faucets and stream money to whoever needs it. Take care of everyone like we did during the coronavirus pandemic. Over the past decade, we've built a strong economy here. Even if the war exacts an economic toll, which it is doing, we will pay that price without hesitation. The platitudes focus on a finance ministry plan to aid reservists, businesses and evacuees. But this conflict scale is unprecedented, as is its potential to drain Israel's economy. Israelis who blame the government for not taking initiative or assuming responsibility for the failures of October 7th don't have faith in the outlined plan. Israel's defense minister predicts this war will be long and difficult. If so, propping up the economy while funding the fighting may be a formidable task. Stephanie Fried, CGTN. Central Israel. And now for more on the impact of the conflict on regional and global economy, we're joined by Chuitown Research Fellow at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Chu. So what do you think about the impact on the regional economy and global economy, in particular on oil prices and supply chains? Well, I think this conflict uh, basically currently, as our reporter just mentioned, has been limited in uh, a rather limited scale. So their impact and spillover effect to the region and to the rest of the world are still, you know, controllable. But what we don't know is that uh, how far and how long this war is going to be 
be here and also the impact will, you know, uh, try to be amplified. For example, right now, even though it's already in the Gaza uh, Strip, but also if further more countries, adjacent nations, has been influenced and dragged into this conflict, probably we're going to see Hormuz Street or the Red Sea and the adjacent, you know, transportation choke points will be affected. And by that moment, I think uh, many uh, world trade and, uh, you know, uh, goods shipment will be affected. We're going to see inflation will go up. And by far, oil prices, even though uh, right now we didn't see much of the rise, it's like a 1% or 2% up. But by that moment, probably it's going to go by uh, 10% or even 20%. Like Ukraine crisis happened uh, in the very beginning. So the oil prices flow up like 50%. This kind of the crisis can happen again if the war continues in the Palestine region. Mm. And also we're going to see supply chain uh, will also be a problem, as well as um, more of the uh, uh, countries get involved in this uh, conflict. For example, some countries are benefiting from the oil uh, price up or benefiting from the military export. They probably would like to see this continues. So if that really happens, I'm really worried about how far and how large the impact will continue to be. Mm, and what do you think about the long-term impacts on the uh, global financial stability? Well, I think this is definitely a bad news for the financial stabilities. Uh, currently, even though uh, we're looking at the whole global market financial uh, financial-wise, is uh, you know a bit stable. But to take a look at uh, Israel, Israel, I think their stock indexes have been already impacted a lot. Not only in, uh, in Israel, as we just heard from the reporter. Just take a look at Egypt. To take a look at the Lebanon. And their companies uh, benefit, you know, uh, Egypt are very famous uh, for the tourism uh, businesses and uh, same as Lebanon and the hospitality industry is very, very important for them. And also the food and the processing and agriculture exporting. So all those companies in the countries has probably going to lose 20 to 30 percent of the benefit. And that is going to be reflected in not only their stock market, but also uh, their currencies. And if the spillover uh, effect is going to be amplified, you're going to see more countries drag into the water. For example, we're talking about Saudi Arabia and also very adjacent uh, business and financial centers such like Qatar and Dubai. So I'm really, really worried about this if it continues. So I think the financial uh, speculators will also join in this uh, uh, again, so to try to push up the oil prices or short the oil prices and also the defense contractors uh, stock prices will also jump the ups and downs. So mm -hmm. this is really a bad news, I see. Well, thank you very much for your analysis. That was Chi Chang, Research Fellow at Beijing Foreign Studies University for us. Welcome back. China's Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Development's latest dispatch shows the national fall grain harvest is more than 95% complete despite summer heat waves and torrential rain. The annual grain output is expected to reach a record high above 650 billion kilograms for the ninth year in a row thanks to the central government's launch of its large-scale yield improvement action for major grain and oil crops. Summer grain production reached 146 billion kilograms, the second highest in history. China's recent efforts to curb reliance on food imports and step up agricultural research funding have helped the world's leading food importer become more resilient to global grain price hikes and supply chain woes. 
China has achieved significant progress and breakthroughs since unveiling the strategic plan for comprehensively deepening reforms. And global business is introducing a series highlighting accomplishments of the past decade, encompassing state-owned enterprises, sustainable development, technological innovation, and rural land reforms. Stay tuned for insightful coverage. And Zhejiang province is stepping up its green transformation with 20 industrial parks and 100 factories newly recognized by the provincial government as low-carbon facilities. Companies based in the province also have a strong presence in the national-level green factory list. And Zhang Shixuan reports. Picking up the iron ore, throwing it into a basket, melting it down and then pouring the molten steel into a mold. This factory is producing frames for sewing machines. There's only a bit dust in the air inside this production area. It is all thanks to the new upgrades to the manufacturing process. In the production process, the smelting of raw materials will generate large amounts of smoke. So, for each electric stove that has a way out, we have installed dust absorption equipment. We also have a system to monitor the pollution data. There have been some thorough upgrades to the company's facilities that were built in the 1990s. Li says the investment in the new equipment is more than 10 times greater than that of two decades ago. It is not just casting. The precision work and packaging areas are now using automated technology. The robots enhance efficiency and reduce waste. The factory in the city of Taizhou has been recognized as a national-level green factory. The total investment stands at more than 1 billion yuan. Much of the smart equipment is produced domestically. In 2005, on a visit to a village in Zhejiang, Xi Jinping talked of environmental protection and sustainable growth. That prompted numerous Chinese cities and villages to take serious moves to develop green industries. Green transformation at industrial factories has been among top priorities. Huge investment has been made to replace these old equipment and build new facilities, and it's paying off. In the short term, we can see a reduction in costs. For example, on each of the work lines, we used to have dozens of or even more than a hundred workers. But now, we only need less than 10 people for equipment maintenance and adjusting parameters. That has lowered the labor costs, and our product quality has improved significantly. Earlier this year, we sold more than 100,000 units of a new product on the day it was released. Many of our clients, especially listed companies, have been paying more attention to ESG, so green development is an inevitable trend. Green transformation has brought in an increasing number of new clients and orders. The company now exports its products to more than 160 countries and regions. Our product's qualification rate has risen from 90% to 98%. The utilization rate of raw materials has grown 8 percentage points. The plant's rooftops are also covered with photovoltaic panels that generate up to 30% of the facility's electricity. The factory opened just three years ago. It now produces around 1 million sewing machines annually. Zhang Shixuan, ICS, VCGTN, Taizhou, Zhejiang Province. And that will do for this edition of Global Business on CGTN. I'm Guan Xing in Beijing. Thanks for being with us. Stay tuned.